We're in the middle of it. Sit, walk, stand, a study in Ephesians based upon the framework by a, a famous book a long time ago by a, a Chinese Christian who, of, of great renown named Watchman Nee. This little book was, has blessed a lot of people over many years. It was probably written in the 50s or 60s. And uh, it, uh, it basically takes Ephesians, the whole letter of Paul to the church at Ephesus, and distills it down into these three these three main categories. And so I wanted to do a quick overview, a quick study of Ephesians, and this gives us a framework with which to do it. And so last week we talked about sit, right? This week, uh, let me see here. This week we are, we are at, um, you knew it, right? Walk. And there's our myriad text up there on the board. Ephesians 4, 1 through 2, 17, 23, 5, 2, 5, 8 through 10. We learned last week that um, our Christian experience doesn't begin with walking, but it begins with what? And what happens is this. Every time we try to reverse that order, uh, as Watchman Nee points out, that sounds like, like, that sounds like a, somebody's a part of a cult. You know? <laughs> but he was, is a, he was an orthodox and, and, and solid Christ, biblical Christian leader. Uh, as, as, but as he pointed out in the book, every time you try to reverse that order of sitting versus you know, sitting and walking, we encounter a kind of usually spiritual disaster. Some of us have been in movements or been in churches where we didn't yet really get in, we hadn't gotten in touch with our relationship with God and Christ and who we were, what God had done for us. We still were unsure about our salvation. We didn't have that assurance of salvation that people talk about. We were still at a point where we were trying to find our way, and we were were led to believe that we had to kind of work our way into it and that we should start walking, and we should stop doing stuff and start doing stuff and be this new person based upon human effort. We should just try real hard. Some people think that Christianity really is about trying harder and stopping your sin and starting to, to, to go to church and be a good Christian person. Uh, we've been in those situations where we have tried to do, before we have fully trusted in Christ's finished work, we've tried to work our way into the kingdom. You know what I'm talking about? We've tried to work our way into the church. I've, I've been in the church all my life, and I came up in, of course, initially in the church of God in Christ, which I, I'm so grateful for my experience and for the people. I was with some of the best the most and, and, and most uh, wonderful people in that movement that really tied that linked back to the beginning of it. But I saw in, in my many travels as a musician, as a, as a teenager, the many places that I went and the many people that I talked to and the many things I saw, a lot of people really were trying to use their behavior, their works, and their achievement to their walking in their own strength to validate their Christianity and to, and to prove to the world and to themselves that they really were okay. And I saw so many spiritual shipwrecks. I've seen so many people fall by the wayside who didn't understand that that, that sit always comes before walking in, in the economy of God. We try to work our way into the kingdom. We try to walk before we had truly come to realize the finality and the totality of Jesus' work on the cross. We tried to live the Christian life in our own strength. You know what I'm talking about? We had not yet come to realize, as we had stated last week, that Christianity doesn't begin with a big do, but it begins with a big done. It doesn't begin with your effort. It begins with, the, with focusing on the effort of the one who died for you and who provided everything for you and who called you to himself, who, who did everything. And when he died on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. He had completed the entire work for your salvation, and it was up to you then to trust and to believe and then to obey, but first to believe. I, I, if I were a stuffy theologian, I'm just, um, I'm an unstuffy armchair theologian. I know guys that go to seminary for two classes and all of a sudden they're theologians. 
theologians. But, but they would say something like this. You see, the indicative always precedes the imperative. The indicative always precedes the imperative. What are they talking about? It's a way of looking at Paul's writing. Um, the in, we're talking about moods in grammar, and there's the indicative mood, there's the, there's the uh, uh, imperative mood, there's the subjunctive mood, but we're talking about the indicative and the imperative. And so what Paul does, he will always begin with who you are before he tells you what to do. He never starts out by saying, wow, you know, y'all need to get your act together. Y'all need to live for God. Y'all need to be more saved. You need to get, you know, go to church more. Y'all need to tr- work real hard, you know. And he always begins with a lot of emphasis on what God has done for you and who you are in Christ and how wonderful the gift you've received and how beautiful you really are on the inside because of the new life you've been given and how, and how blessed you are and how much potential God has placed in you and how his, even the Corinthians who were, who were really uh, out of whack, uh, he begins by, you know, the sandwich technique, and he finds something to say about, about, about their faith and about the gifts that God has placed in them and about, about the good things that he saw there because he wants to indicate that it begins with what God has done for you and in you and not what you've done for God. The indicative says, this is who you are. The imperative says, says now this is what you do. And in all of Paul's letters, you'll always no- notice that he always starts with that, and so there's always that, and then the section toward the end of the letter is now this is how you live and how you conduct yourself and how you walk this out. But here's the question. What, what flows from who and what we are in Christ, in Christ what, what flows from that with regard to our lifestyle? It is our walk. Right? Um, sitting describes our position with Christ in the heavenlies. Walking is the practical outworking of that heavenly position here on earth. Amen? And so, uh, the turning point in Ephesians where Paul begins to transition from the indicative to the imperative occurs in Ephesians 4.1. And he writes there, he says, Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live Worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. First of all, note the use of the word therefore. You always say, you see the word therefore, you ask, what is it therefore? Because you don't begin a sentence with therefore. I'm going to walk over to my wife and say, therefore, we're going to go to lunch today. We're actually not going to go to lunch because we're going to be here till 3 o'clock. Therefore, we will be here till 3 o'clock. She said, therefore, what, 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 what were we talking about? It all, that always references something that's been previously said. And so the therefore is all of what Paul has said up to this point about who you are in Christ. All that Paul has said about his prayers for his, his readers that they would come to see and to understand and to behold the riches of God's grace and, and the glorious inheritance they, that they have in him and all of, all of the gifts and blessings that, that they have. That, that, that's the therefore. Therefore, since, since you are... Since you have been saved by grace through faith and that not of yourself, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Since you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he planned in advance for you to do. Since, since all of these things are true, since he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you can ask, think, or imagine according to the power that is in you. Since that's true, then this is how you live. This is what you do. This is what that enables and empowers you to be and to become and to live and, and to walk out. Walk it out. Right? Therefore. Since you've been saved by grace, then now you begin to walk it out. Now, in contemporary translations, that word, it's, it's translated, the word for walk is sometimes, tra- is often translated live. Live in the text before us from the CSB. Live wor- worthy of the calling 
you have received. But uh, the, the, the Greek word peripateo, which, which is used here in the text, uh, is, is uh, transliterated into, let's see if this comes up. Work for me. There it is. Peripateo. You, you recognize that, right? You know me. Peripateo. And that's the transliteration into English. And it means this. It means uh, walk, go or move about, live, conduct yourself. So it kind of expands it out. So when, when we translate it as live, that's, that's, a, that's a proper, respectable translation. But the sense of it, 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 it is broader than that. It actually goes back to some Hebrew idioms. And so it's like the idea to walk, go, or move about, live, conduct yourself. And it has to do with life because life is kind of like, life is a walk, isn't it? Sometimes it's a walk in the park. Sometimes it's a walk in the dark. <laughs> you know? But it's a walk. You move, you know, the Bible says of, uh, that in him we live and move and have our being. And so we walk around, we move around. And as we go, as we encounter challenges, as we meet people, as we, uh, as we deal with frustration, as we deal with all the things in life that we do, as we walk about it, and everything you do for the most And for the most part, this really focuses on relationships and the way we relate to can you say others? <laughs> now, I, tell you, I tell you this all the time, and I'll tell you till the cows come home, and there are no cows around here, so I don't know when that's going to happen. Actually, when I was growing up in Carson, on Avalon and 169th, Centerview, um, that's, that's north of DA, uh, those of you that are Carson people, there's probably none here. But, but and when I was a kid, it, that area was just being developed. and they were, they were, So we, our house was there. It was Avalon Boulevard. Our house backed up. And across it was a, a lot of oil fields. And you know what they would do? They would graze cows through there. And sometimes we would be coming down the street, you'd have to stop for cows to go. That was in, like, Carson, 169. Yeah. I, so you say, that must have been a long time ago. <laughs> I shouldn't have told that story. Cause that's <laughs> but, uh, you, you know, others, I say this, and I'll say it to the cows come home. Most of what you see in the New Testament as far as conduct and lifestyle has to do with how we relate to others. And we're constantly being admonished and challenged to show our faith and live our faith out with how we relate to people. Because you really, there's all these one another's in the New Testament. I forget the number. There's like, there's, there's, there's scores of them. And it's like, this is, these are like the chief commands to us as Christians. And so it's really hard to live for Christ in a box or, you know, if you lock yourself in public storage or something. It's really, it's really hard to live for Christ in a solitary fashion. But the reality of it is that most people in the world don't have the, the, the option of living in a solitary fashion. We live in cities. We live in communities. We live in, we live in families. We, live, we are part of churches. We're part of communities. We, have, we go to school. We have jobs. We are invest we we rub shoulders with all with other people sometimes more than we want to all the time and so as we walk around and as we bump upside other people we're called to walk to walk worthy he says to live worthy of the calling you have received now that going back to 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 that uh that that that, that live worthy of the calling you know you the question might become it might have something to do with um uh, um uh, wow, so this means, see there, I got to be worthy. I got I to earn this. No, that's not what it's talking about. The Greek word axios, which means worthy, deserving, but the, here's where, what it means in this context. Words have different meanings in different contexts, right? You know that? That's why, that's why if you decide to study the Bible, you're just doing word studies with, with Strong's Concordance, you have to be careful because you have to make sure, because even in those concordances, they'll tell you what it means in different texts because words have different, like, you know, Michael Jackson said, I'm bad. Oh, 
he's a bad man. No, he was, he was bad. You know, Dimitri on the drums is bad. Does that mean I'm going to fire him? No, I mean, I'm, I, I wish I could give him a raise. <laughs> so, uh, Axios, in keeping with or as evidence of. Did your mom ever tell you, you know, don't, 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 don't shame the family name. You know, make me proud. Live like you somebody I raised. <laughs> In keeping with as evidence of proper fitting. In other words, Paul says, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to live in a manner that is befitting, that is, that is consistent with the calling that is the calling that you profess. In deserving with keeping it. In other words, our lifestyles are to be consistent with all this incredible stuff that God, all this stuff that God has done on the inside is supposed to be manifesting on the outside. That's what the indicative imperative thing is. The imperative is not just God, you know, Paul commanding us, but Paul drawing us out to live in a way in the world that's consistent with what's on the inside of our heart, what God has done for us in the spirit, with where we're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, right? That's exciting to me. In other words, be who you really are. Live in a manner that, 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 that coincides and, and, and is consistent with your new life in Christ. Some of us we, we, we come to Christ, we, we, we become saved, we have a new relationship, a new life in Christ, but we, sometimes it takes us a while, sometimes too long to begin to live in a way that is worthy of that, a, a, a way that is befitting that, a way that is appropriate for that, worthy of the calling, he says. What do you mean call? He's talking to preachers, right? I'm not called. I don't have a calling on my life. I'm not called to preach. I'm not called. I don't have the call to be a pastor. No, no, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the high calling in Christ that we all share. First Peter 2 says he's called us out of darkness, all of us as believers, into his marvelous light. He says live in a manner worthy of that calling. Live in a way that is consistent with, that, with the fact that he's called you out of something, into something, out of something that was, that, was, that was death and something that was terrible, into something that is life and something that is wonderful. Live in a way that's worthy, that's consistent with that. He's called us to faith and repentance. He's called us to follow him. So we're to walk around, move about, live our practical lives on earth in a way that reflects the incredible work that Christ has done in our lives. Can I get an amen from somebody? Amen. Here's the key, and this is the ticket. In the context of our study, you have to remember, we don't do this in our own strength. We do it in the strength of the one who seated us with him. Remember when Paul writes about power in, in Ephesians? And earlier in the, in the book, he prays that his readers would come to know about the power that raised Jesus from the dead. The power that not only raised Jesus from the dead, but that seated Christ at the right hand of the Father in heaven. That power that not only raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father in heaven, but that power that raised us with him and has seated us in the same place, we're seated, at, we're seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ, with Christ. That's a power of God. And Paul wants his readers to understand that that's God's power. It's not your strength, but you can draw upon that power. And you must rely upon that power if you are to live the Christian life. Dis I would like to dispel any notion in anyone's mind today that you can in any way live the Christian life in your own strength. Just because you're smart, just because you're good looking, just because you're, you're clever, just because you're talented, just because you're gifted or you're young, gifted and black. I don't know. Just because, 
just because you got it going on, just because you have a, a, a strong intent, just because you've been guilted and shamed, it doesn't matter. You cannot live for Christ effectively in your own strength. You will never satisfy the demands of God in your own power. It must, you must rely on the power of God, but oh, how limitless are the resources. How amazing and incredible is the power that God has given to us. Paul wants them to know about that. It took God's power to save you. It took God's power to, to, to seat you. It took God's power to seal you, if you will. It, and it will take God's power for you to walk out, to l- demonstrate in the world as you go about your daily activities, the change that God has made in your life. As a matter of fact, in 417, Paul gives them the basis of kind of walk, what this walk looks like and what it consists of. He says, I say, he says, therefore I say this and I testify in the Lord. You should no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their thoughts. What are Gentiles? I, had a fr- I have a friend out of the East L.A. community and uh, he, he grew up in, in, in East L.A. in the 60s older guy now um, and they had a band that became the Midnighters but they were f- called at one point the Gentiles <laughs> they didn't know what that means they just thought it sounded cool because one, they had one Jewish kid in their band and one night they were dropping him off at home after, a re- after practice and as he was going to the door his father opened the door and said hey what are you doing hanging out with these Gentiles <laughs> and they said hey that's pretty cool we'll call ourselves the Gentiles <laughs> But Gentiles in, in, the, in the Bible refers to anyone that's not Jewish, anyone not of Israel, and anyone not a, a, you know, a descendant of, of Abraham in that, in that physical sense. And in the broader sense, in, the, in, in, in our time, it, it, in the scripture, for us, it, it indicates non-Jews, and it indicates, you know, we can start talk, talk about heathens. Now, some of you, don't, don't call your children, and don't call your husband. Or, uh, have you ever called me a heathen? You called me a lummox once, but never a heathen. <laughs> I don't know where you got that from. That was about 30 years ago. But, but uh, non-Israelites, and it could be expanded to include the idea of pagans. But from our, from our perspective, it's like people that outside of the faith that don't know God and that are just spiraling out of control crazy because they don't have faith. The world around you without Christ. And he says, he says and he's, the, he's emphatic about this. And he says, therefore, I say this and I testify in the Lord. It's like he could just say, you should no longer. He says, no, let me, let, me, let me testify here about this. Let me state this emphatically. You should no longer live as the Gentiles live because they live in the futility of their thoughts. Paul paints a picture for us of those who live according to the flesh. That is those who follow natural impulses. That's all they have. They follow their sex drive. They follow their physical hunger. They follow their lust for money and pain, fame and power and notoriety. And they're driven by that, and there's no control on that, so anything goes. There's a lot of that in the news right now, isn't there, in places where it shouldn't be in our culture. They follow natural impulses, but more importantly, those whose minds, having not been renewed by the Spirit of God, are characterized by futility. What does futility mean to you? It's stuff that doesn't matter. You think about stuff, you say, whatever it is, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Say it again. Look at the news this week. And I say this unabashedly. Even in high places of our government, futility, futile thinking, 
people that are evidently not thinking straight. People's minds being consumed with things that have no real lasting value in, in, in life. No root in reality, no redemptive quality. Sometimes with stuff that's just vile and disgusting. When God renews our minds, he enables us to begin to think in a new way. To think about things that matter. To think about, to think biblically. To think thoughts shaped by love for others. To not wake up at 5.30 in the morning and tweeting out stupid stuff about people that you have a grudge against. Really? And you give this person the nuclear codes. I mean, really. So much of, of what fills, fills the minds of people in the world around us is just, without God, it's just garbage. And so the biggest and first change that happens in our lives as Christians is that we are renewed in our minds and so we can think straight and we can, we can think right. The work of the Spirit of God in our lives, the transformation of our minds enables us to think about things that, 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 are, that are redemptive and uplifting. In, in Philippians, Paul puts it like this. He says, he says this, he says, therefore, he says, think about this, whatever is true. Wow. Evaluate your public discourse. And your culture, or whatever culture you're a part of, evaluate it on this and, 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 judge, and, and govern your thoughts with this and allow God to govern your thoughts by the Spirit. Whatever is true, whatever is, is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there's anything praiseworthy, think about these things. We're having in our culture to think about stupid stuff. Filthy stuff. The, the current discussion is, brings filth and, and immorality up to the public level to where we have to explain stuff to kids that they shouldn't have to deal with till they're gro- uh, half grown. But this is, this, is where I, this, this is where God, this is, what, this is what the Spirit of God working in our, in, in our minds, it brings us to, to, to begin to think this way. And that's what Paul is saying. This is where you, you need to be. You, know, you need to make sure that you understand that you, you, you're not living like those who are entrapped by the futility of their minds. Oh, sometimes we work with our, our dear young people in the educational sector. We see some of our children, some of our, our teenagers growing up in our community. And some, there's some, some, many of them are so beautiful, and they're just kids, right? I mean, they're just coming up, and they, have, they go through phases. And, and they're, they're you, you, you know, I, I sub, for, I think, for middle school, like at least two, two times this week. And actually, the last one was in, in, in South Central. No, one, one was high school. And it was actually, I went all day, and it was, it was actually, they were actually, they actually, we did silent reading. They actually read silently. I couldn't believe it. And among those kids, there's some kids, this one girl, she, she just, you know, couldn't, she, she's a sweet girl, but she just couldn't sit down. Because kids have, there's hormonal stuff and physiological stuff and and developmental stuff. And you gotta, you gotta, so you got to give, give young people and children, you cut them some slack for where they are, right? I mean, Max was all over the house last night. <laughs> Just because he, he went into the, because our freezer is like a pull out at the bottom. He went in, he went and pulled the freezer out and brought out the Hagen dazs and brought it over. <laughs> and, 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 and after the Hagen dazs and some fruit, he ran into the kitchen. He pulled some placemats out the thing. I said, no, no, dude, we got to chill. But I always remind myself because he's really smart. I remind he's two years old. You look at me, you say, well, what about you, pastor? <laughs> but, but then some, young, some of our young people, they, 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 they're, they're allowing their minds to, to be bent. These children are exposing themselves. My wife is confiscating weed from kids in 11, 12, and 13. Uh, and and uh, they're, 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 they're 
plugging in their ear, earbuds and listening to stuff all day long that's really negative and, and counterproductive and antisocial. And, and so there's a, that futility gets built in, and they'll spend, that futility will, will send them on a trajectory. Some of them is going to send them to some bad places. Some of them will grow out of it. Some of them will figure it out, like some of you did. Futility. But Paul says this is where our heads need to be. This is where we need to end up like this. And he puts it like this. He says this, we need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. But again, this is the work of God's Holy Spirit in us. It is his work on us, the work of his strength in our lives. It doesn't come from trying harder. It comes from what? Trusting. Because it's not about trying. It's about trusting. I know for some of you that seems hard to, to, to wrap your head up. Just, just sit with it and, and live with it and allow God to, to reveal to you how you live because this is how you do the Christian. Yes, there's human effort involved. Absolutely. We fast, we pray, we discipline ourselves, we read the word, we, you know. But there's a thing about, it's not just your trying. It, it starts with your trusting God and relying on his strength and not your own. And then our, our walk is characterized by love. He says in Ephesians 5, 2, and walk in love. Now, if your mind is right, say he was in his right mind, but his mind still wasn't right. But after your mind is right, walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us. Look, aren't those beautiful words? A sacrifice, a sacrificial and pleasing and fragrant, rather, offering to God. Wow. I mean, that's the nature of our walk. It's a walk of love. And this love has, in the words of Romans 5, 5, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And we walk in love because we are loved. Here's a problem. If you don't know that you're loved, it's hard to love somebody else. How about that? Hard to love yourself until you realize, come to realize that God loves you and values you and highly esteems you and he created you for high and holy and lofty and beautiful and wonderful purposes and you are the apple of his eye and, and, and you, are, you are his workmanship, and God loves you and with an unconditional love, the n- love that can never change. He can, he can never love you any more, any less than he does right now. It's all about love. And notice what he says. He says, we love just as Christ gave us, loved us and gave himself up for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Sacrificial, notice that word. Love enables us to give stuff up to benefit others. Love enables us to, to go the distance with others. Love enables us to, 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 sac- to, to, uh, to be long-suffering and patient with others. It allows us to be sacrificial as well. Sometimes in a relationship, I know you think, I know what the people say, well, you know, marriage is a 50-50 proposition. And you know, most of you know that's a lie. That marriage is 100-100. Everybody gives 100%. And sometimes you're giving that 100% and sometimes you're not getting the other 100 and then other times, and it goes back and forth because in human relationship, because you're not perfect. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to tell you that today. You came to church to have somebody tell you that. But that's the way relationships are. Sometimes you carry the ball. Sometimes somebody else carries the ball. But at the end, you meet up together, and everything is good because you because of you're living out the love of God in Christ sacrificially. And He says it's a fragrant offering to God. It's fragrant because it reflects Christ and it's pleasing to Him. It's like I, I sometimes I'm walking and I'll. In my, in my community or sometimes in my, in my backyard. I don't even know where exactly where it is, but in somebody's plants, I smell that jasmine on a nice, on a nice warm spring evening. And I'm like, man, that's better than my cologne, even the expensive one, you know. 
mm, that's better than my wife's perfume, even the expensive one. I don't know. But, uh, but you know, you know, sweet, uh, or, you know, it's like, a, like, like the house, like the, the, when you just fried up a fresh pan of bacon. <laughs> you see, Pastor, that's what's wrong with you. <laughs> but it's, to God, it's like this fragrant offering. God is like, when, when we live in love, God is like, mm, oh, my goodness, that is all oh, that. It makes him, it blesses him, it honors him, and it, it is pleasing to him like a good smell is pleasing to you. That's what we're, we're, we're to live in a way that would be a pleasing aroma. It's all about love. And therefore, of course, it inevitably involves others, right? And since it's about the walk, then it has to be lived out, acted out in a practical manner. As you move about, as you live your life from day to day, you relate to others in a manner that reflects the love of Christ. You ever read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 and 6? We taught about it last year. We did a series on it. It's the supreme expression of this walk, really, because it's Jesus talking to his followers and saying, this is really the ethic of the kingdom. This is how you really live out my teaching. This is how you follow me. You know? And uh, it's the supreme expression of of walking the, 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 the Christian walk. Jesus gives this demanding and exacting uh, picture of how we're to move about in life. And we're to move about differently than those around us. And we're, how our walk in Christ consists of radical love. A love that doesn't, and he goes on to describe it like this. It's a love that doesn't retaliate wrongs. It's a love that's proactive in doing good. It's a love that's not braggy about its spirituality. You know, it doesn't pray on the street corners really loud and give money to people like, hey, here's a dollar, you know. A, a walk that's not consumed by anxiety and care about the things of this life, but it's con- it consists of faith and trust. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls us to a sexuality that's free from lust, speech that's without guile and deception, and love for our enemies. And Jesus makes this shocking statement. He says, your righteousness, you, 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 unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, there's no way you're going to enter into the kingdom of God. And we say, wow, you know, I may as well forget it because I'm just me. But we come to realize that it's not about our strength. The question is, yeah, were we really supposed to? People struggle with this really on an academic level, on a theological level. People struggle with, are we really supposed to live the Sermon on the That's... You'll hear people say, that's for Jews. It was for Jews. He was talking to Jews. He was talking to yous. <laughs> Are we really supposed to do it? I believe that, that the answer to that question is a resounding yes. It's part of the New Testament canon. The church has embraced that. It's the word of Scripture. But here's the catch. It's more than just moralism. It's more than just do-goodism. It's more than just something you can do in your own strength. Remember, there's a quote. I don't remember the exact contour, the exact words, but I remember the contours of it. Uh, D. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great British preacher who wrote a two-volume sermon series years ago, many years ago, on on the Sermon on the Mount that I read when I was a teenager, and it kind of really helped to start shaping my my theology. Uh, He said, there's this mountain that you have to come to, and you've got to climb this mountain, and the minute you you think that you can climb it in your own strength, you you haven't understood it at all. And that's the way, that's the way the things that God calls us to do. If we look at it, it is, it's a challenge. You, some of you have things in your life and you know that you need to let God deliver you from those things or free you from those things. But the thing about it is if you think that you can do that in your own strength, you haven't understood the gospel. 
What did the Christian right get wrong? It was a movement driven by the notion that through controlling government and making laws, you can meaningfully and enduringly change the conduct of people, particularly people without faith in a broader pluralistic society. The truth is this. We can never win a culture war by wielding carnal weapons of earthly power. As a matter of fact, we're not called to fight culture wars. We're called to fight what I'll talk about next week. There's a battle we're called to fight. We fight all the wrong battles sometimes, and we're fighting these wars in our own strength. And, we, and, 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 and I'm going to just be honest. White evangelicals are dealing with the thing. They thought that by electing the heathen that they put in the White House that they could bring about God's purpose in this country. It will never work that way. He's our King Cyrus. God, there are good people. There are good men in the Republican Party that have character, that, that, that love their, their wives and respect them, that, that, that respect other people and understand the way government works in this country. But, they, but this Christian element thought that they, could, that they could manipulate power in an earthly sense to accomplish some sort of godly outcome. It, it, it will never work. And, there's, and it's going to get worse before it gets better. An article in the New York Times on Friday about black people leaving white evangelical churches in relative droves because of this, this disconnect and this, 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 this uh, dichotomy that's going on. There's also word about a confusion and decline among evangelicalism because of this kind of mindset. There's the fact that younger people don't want to play those games. The church's power is found in the weakness of a crucified God. Not a Republican or a Democrat or an independent political platform. Changed lives come from changed hearts. And our influence, if properly applied, is greater than anything we can accomplish in the flesh by any other means or any other supposed power. And so, yes, Christ calls us to do seemingly impossible things, to live lives that are way beyond sometimes where we start out at, right? But let me tell you something. There is a power for us. Ephesians 3.21, Paul puts it like this. He says, now to him, and it's in the form of a kind of doxology, to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works. Where does it work? In us. He says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. What is this power for? I know sometimes, you know, we grew up, sometimes we're in the church and we grow up and, you know, people, you know a, lot of, a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of people just kind of, they ply us with this because we want power and we want to be control stuff and we want to have stuff that we want and do stuff that we want to do and get breakthrough in our own thing, you know. Uh, but, but you have to take this contextually. What is this power for? First and foremost, it, it, it enables us to walk out our faith to do the things that Jesus said. Is it not? Now, come on. I know it's power to demolish strongholds. Power to help me quit smoking. Yeah, that comes down a lot. Power to beat back the devil. Yes, that, that's part of it down. That, that's part. And you say, well, the Bible says that he, he has given the power to get wealth. Yeah, yeah, you know, there's, there's a way you can kind of work with that, but, but uh, in a sense. But we, we want to wield this power in all kinds of ways that, that are based upon our agenda and our use of power because we as human beings like to use power, and power gets us in trouble, Right? 
Uh, but, but before this power that Paul is talking about, before it accomplishes anything else, and you should be glad about this because it's going to help us get to our real, our primary purpose in life and our primary agenda, which is this. Before it, it does anything, it empowers us to walk in the world in a way that expresses who we are in Christ. So you can live for God in a way that, that pleases him. You can, you can overcome those habits. You can overcome those things. That you, you, can, you can get over that anger and that, and that resentment and that bitterness and that stuff. You can be healed from that. You can learn new ways of responding, new ways of relating to people. You can learn to think differently. You can learn to respond differently because of the fact that there's this power that's able to do above all that we ask or think. Because there, there's, there's a work in your life that you haven't even thought about that God's going to do. And you're going to look back 20 years from now and marvel at who you've become and how God has worked to bring you forward in your Christian walk. Power that's above all that we can ask, think, or someone said even imagine. It empowers us to live out the Sermon on the Mount. Now, that connects us in a real way with the idea of sitting last week. And this is what Nee writes. It says, the Christian's secret, your secret, now you know there's a book, The Secret, but this is your secret, is his rest in Christ. His power derives from his God-given position. All who sit can walk, for in the thought of God, the one, fo- the one follows the other spontaneously. We sit forever with Christ that we may walk continuous, continuously before men. Forsake for a moment our place of rest in him, and immediately we're tripped, and our testimony in the world is marred. But abide in Christ, and our position there ensures the power to walk worthy of him there. That's like what Paul prays for the saints in Ephesians 1.19. He says, this, that I pray that you guys would come to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. Throughout the rest of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he shows us how to walk with regard to various relationships in life, various situations. This is where it plays out. And Paul, he brings it out. You can read the rest of the letter. And he brings it out in a very practical sense. It's like, you know, and this thing of doing it while seated, it's kind of like driving a car. Now, I, first when I was a kid, I still, I always thought the UPS drivers were cool. Could they be standing up? I thought, you know, driving a truck. But when you drive your car, you don't stand up, right? Unless your seat is really broke. When I was a kid, I was a youngster. I, I, I had a car, my first car, and it was a defect in the seat backs. And so they would like be back at the bottom. So, you know, it's like, I know some of y'all young guys like to lay lean back in a car. You know, that's too, that's too far back. You got to be able to see. I'm like, you know. But, but, you know, but just like, be, you know, you're in a car, you're moving, but you're seated. You're, you know, you're, you're climbing hills. You're, some, something is doing some work. There's some horsepower that underneath you that, that's propelling you. You're seated, but you are, you are moving and you're going somewhere, but it's not on your own strength. All you're doing is just move the steering wheel. You're power steering, power brakes, power everything. You're just chilling, you know. And that's kind of a picture of it. It's like we're seated. We're driving a car, right? The power is being utilized. You can sit back and let the engine do the work while you glide down the highway through all the hills and valleys and whatever. And it's the same thing. We're seated with Christ. We sit and we relax. And then we, in a sense, we're also walking at the same time because we're using that power. We're relying upon his power. Now, as we get ready to try to wrap this up, understand that this impacts every area of our lives, every relationship. And Paul makes that clear through the rest of, of the book. He, tr- he tries to be comprehensive in that. In chapter 4, he tells us that we've been empowered and we're commanded then, and this is what he says, to, to take off the former way of life and the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires to be renewed in the spirit of, of your minds and put on the new self. Say new self. 
you got a new self whether you want to put it on or not. That's, that's up to you, but you got it. It's like, kind of like, you know, it's like, uh, uh, you know, Superman or somebody. You got a suit, Batman. What's the dude in, uh, in, in Black Panther? Uh, yeah, you know, he had that, they gave him that cool, the new one now, you know. But you got, you, you got, a, new, you got a new self. He says, take, take off the old self, put on the new self. You got you to be willing to stop thinking like a heathen in the futility of your mind. You got to be willing to stop doing stupid stuff that you, that's self-destructive to you and your family. You got to be willing to let go of I, things that have not served you well, things that have, 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 have brought you grief and brought grief to Let go. Put up, that's the old self. Put on the new self. The new self... The new self is, is, is walking in the truth of God. The new self walks in love. The new self knows how to love, to give, to serve, and how to shut up. <laughs> I just threw that in there. He says, and, and put on the new self, the one created, look at the, look at the model, created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. It reminds them, he reminds them rather now that the power that comes from our position in Christ enables us to be honest, pure, and uplifting in the way that we speak. He talks about that. He says, be angry and do not sin. He tells us to be honest and upright, to don't steal people's stuff. Don't be going in the store saying, well, you know, they won't miss this. At your job. If I just said at your job, you laugh, because some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Uh, I knew a guy, his whole apartment was stuff from where he worked. <laughs> Someone was given to him, but you know, you know, you got you got all these all these these pens with the name of this company on it. You got staplers, and uh, I need can I borrow a stapler? I got ten of them here. <laughs> he said, "Don't steal." He says, "You know." He, in chapter five, he tells him, "Let God order your sexuality so that you get get out of this pornified culture." And quit seeing everything as sex, 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 and start seeing people as people and quit objectifying people. Uh, uh, put away stuff that dishonors God and objectifies other people. And he, then he tells them this, and a lot of preachers would do good to hear this. Don't be greedy. And then he talks, don't talk filthy. Don't talk dirty. Quit cussing, you know. He says, don't get drunk. He says, don't get drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. There's, a, there's another alternative. You don't have to be running around, you know, let's go get stoned. <laughs> I always have to qualify this when I read, when I'm teaching out of Paul, you know, he says, I was, um, I was beaten, I was stoned. I said, that's with real rocks, okay? Uh, he says, don't get drunk. Be filled with the Spirit. Instead of getting high, pursue the joy of gratitude and worship and community. There's really something better than just zoning out all the time. Zoning into things that really are, that, that, that are real. And then he moves to relationships and he suggests that if, if you will trust Christ and rely on the power of the work within you, it will affect things like the way married couples relate to one another, huh? He says, husbands are to love your wives sacrificially as Christ loved the church. You give up something, you lay down something. And wives are to respect their husbands. When you, and, and so when you see your spouse as a fellow sojourner in, 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 in the faith, as a fellow Christian, as a fellow, believer who's trying to, who's a fellow believer who's trying to get somewhere, when you see your husband, it's a different relationship. And, and Paul brings that in. Uh, you know, children are to obey their parents, he says. But he doesn't get, let parents off the hook. Don't be whooping your kid all upside the head and in Target because they took, you know, touched something on the rack. <laughs> I'm serious. Sometimes when I'm in public, I, I just be wanting to grab some of these parents. I heard this woman, she was just cussing these kids. Little kids, just, I mean, with, uh, you know, words that way out. And I'm like, what's wrong with you? Because when they grow up and do that, you're going to be beating them back for doing it. Right. And they're going to be sending them home. Well, they don't, school can't even control that no more. But, uh, but it says, fathers, don't anger your children. In other words, parents, 
Treat your children with love and respect. Don't, don't, don't brutalize them. Don't abuse them. Don't, don't be harsh with them so that then they're angry and spend the rest of their lives living that out. He says, slaves and masters. Now, short explanation. I'm going a little long. I'll be finished in a minute. Short explanation. Slaves and masters. Slavery was a different institution in the New Testament era in, the, in those times. It was a much more benevolent institution than, as, uh, than the slavery that was experienced in the last few centuries, particularly in the United States. So we often understand that and people start bristling, oh, slavery. Paul is not, in, is not his task here is not to upend the social order. So he, he works within it because people are, people are getting, they're getting a better lot by indenturing themselves to households rather than being on their own. And they often can then buy their freedom. And he tells slaves, first of all, he tells masters, to be, you know, tells masters to, be, to treat their slaves right and slaves to be right toward their masters. Relationships, with it, it's a relationship. Let's take it to the, to the work relationship today. Employees, give your, give your boss, give your company an honest day's work. Don't be, and don't steal the staplers. And companies, companies, this is where justice comes in, in this country right now, in this time of deepening, deepening inequality. You know the greatest, you know the biggest re- recipient of, of welfare in this country? Walmart. Because they hire people for less than full time. For not, I guess they're supposed to be giving more money now. Yeah. Uh, and then these people go, and how do, they, how do they live? They go and they still have to supplement their income with food stamps and with other forms of public assistance. So, we're, so the public is subsidized. So Walmart makes billions of dollars of profit. And you know, their folks are all rich. And they got millions. And they say, but well, they're making grabs. Yeah, but you know what? From a Christian perspective, it would challenge employers to, to provide a living wage for their employees and to, to provide a better quality of life and to try to bring people up rather than just keep them at a certain place enslaved. You know what I'm saying? So as a Christian business, as Christian corporations, the word of God speaks to the corporate greed that's all around us that, 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 has, that will not pay workers a fair wage and that, that does everything at every turn to, to thwart organized labor and to thwart efforts at workers to gain a better life. That's not, you can't do that and claim to be Christian because the word of God, even in Ephesians says, slaves, if you want to, by extension, you know, be fair and just with your, I mean, masters, with your slaves, employees, employers rather, with your employees. You see, and and I say all that to say this, you see, he's just being, no, that's real. Those are real, those are real conditions and a real situation. And I, and, and I stand by that. But faith, this faith that we have has to invade every corner of our lives. That's what I'm talking about this morning. It has to impact every relationship. It has to influence every encounter. Here's the bottom line. It matters how we live. It really does. And there's, we live for God through the power that has been given us through Jesus Christ, through the resurrection of Christ. It matters so much that God has provided us from our seated position. The power to walk worthy of our calling. Let me close with this. The end product will be what we call holiness. I refer to that as the H word because it's one of the most misunderstood words in the church today and in culture. Because the word doesn't in no way in its biblical and theological context in no way implies a dull, boring, legalistic, hypocritical folk religion. There it I know somebody said, he, he went to the holiness church. Oh, yeah. I know it must have been a gut bucket, pew jumping, <laughs> money grabbing, you know, 
swinging from the chandeliers and store storefronts don't have chandeliers. So they're swinging from the, the fluorescents. You know, but there's a, we think of whole, it's like it, they must have loud music and old, mean old ladies. You coming up here? That's that dress is the red your skirt down here. That way you coming up here with that mini skirt on. <laughs> you coming in here half naked. <laughs> I know. Now the trip about it is that in in church communities, often the the the, the mothers and the it really really work when it works right, and it does many times. That, that there's that, that older, we need that, that depth of relation, we need that relation, generational depth in the church. And we do need that guidance. And sometimes I saw some praise dancers on YouTube, somebody sent me to, and they were like, like they was wearing, like they were supposed, they were about to go to the club. And I'm not talking about the, the boys' club or the girls' club. I mean, it was like, and you know, there was darn near twerking up in there. <laughs> You know, so some, some, some of these churches, some of these folks need, they need to get connected with some of the historical, some, some common sense, some, some modesty and some wisdom. But you know what I'm talking about. We, we, of holy, we think of, you know, preachers, you know, cross-eyed guy with his glasses on sideways. Let me tell you something. You're going to hell. All y'all, all y'all go right now. The caricatures and the stupid stuff in our culture and the missteps and the folk religion, it obscures something. It obscures something important. It, it obscures the fact that holiness, biblically, and this is what Paul is leading his readers to in Ephesians. This is what the walk is about. It's the most wonderful idea and the most wonderful concept imaginable. Stay with me just a couple more minutes. The concept of a life totally plugged into the power of God. A life where we experience power over the coercion of our own flesh. Power over the coercive influence of this crazy world around us. And we are liberated and free to be what we were created to be and to live as we were created to live. And to be the people God made us to be. It's a life in which we're liberated to be that. It's a life when, that we're, where we're free to experience the, the love, the joy, the peace, the victory, the, the blessing, the contentment, the fulfillment. That we were created to walk in. It's only found in God because we are his creation. The work of his hands, his workmanship. And we flourish most beautifully as human persons when we live in sync with God's design for us. There's so much of what you see in the world around you. People living and acting and thinking and behaving in ways that they weren't created to live in. And they're out of sync with God. And it's not about guilt and shame. It's about the tragedy of missed human potential, broken relationships with creator. We need to get this. We need to walk this walk. We need to do it as I close with a sense of urgency. In other words, don't just listen to this stuff. You go to church and you hear this kind of teaching all the time. And don't just say, yeah, you know, that's cool. But understand this fault. Close it out like this. He, said, he says this in 5, 15, and 17. He says, pay careful attention, man. I hope you pay careful attention to what we said today, to how you live. Not as unwise people, but as wise. How many wise folks we got in the house today? Why are we interested? Making the most of the time. Making the most of the, Man, it's crazy because the older I got, and I talk with people my age about I'm a man of a certain age. I don't want to tell you what that certain age is. Uh, but the and when, I, when, I, when I'm in the classroom, it's funny because 
kids ask you, Mr., how old are you? None of your business. <laughs> then I get this about once a day. I like your eyes. You know, I'm like, whatever. But he says, but, but man, as you get, it's like you realize, you, the more you go through life, you realize, I don't have time to waste. Because I don't have 50, when I was 20, I may have had 50 years to get it together. I don't have that now. Unless, unless I really do a good job on this other stuff I'm going to work. I mean, I don't know, you know. But, but I don't have that. And for, you know what, the thing about it, nobody, you don't know the time of the day, so you don't know how much time you have. That's why Paul says, get busy with God. Get about this thing. Go on and plug in. Get, get going. Get in church. Get, get engaged. Get, get focused. Make the most of the time because the days are evil. You see what's going on around you. You don't know what might happen. So there, what assurance do we have that the United States of America, that we, you know, that, you know, that, that we love and cherish some of our nation, we love our country. But what assurance do we have that we will, this country and this current political order will, will survive? That's, I know that's dire stuff, but you, because God ordained it. How do you know that? I'll go Jeremiah right all up on you. Because we have done so much as a nation and continue to, to exploit and to abuse. And we, we stole this land from other people. We brought people over here by, against their will and, 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 and oppressed. So, I mean, it's like we're, we're, we got some stuff that we got we to give account for. So you don't, know, you don't know what the next 50 years of life for us is. So get right with God and stay right with God and allow God to begin to shape your life and mold your character so that you can see, look at the world around you, whatever you go through, through the lens of God's truth and so that you can be equipped to deal with whatever comes your way, whatever way the economy goes, whatever way the politics goes, whatever way the nation goes, whatever way the world goes, whatever happens in your family or on your block. God will get you together so that you can deal with it. He says, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And I know what his will is first. What's the Lord's will for your life? Well, his will for all of us right now is all we talked about today, that we walk in the power of the Spirit. We walk in a way worthy of the calling we've received. Crazy times, evil days, dire straits, whatever. All these can cause believers to, to despair, to become confused, to get off of our game, to wander, to settle in with the status quo. But if we're wise, not unwise, we will see this as a season of opportunity. Amen. Come on. And we will live each day to the fullest. We'll open up our hearts and minds to understand God's will. And God's will is everything we talked about. And then next week we'll explore the final component of this, of this study in Ephesians. And we'll talk about what it means to stand. And I am done. God bless you. Amen. Now, real quick. I, I went longer and much longer than I planned to. But I what I need to do, right? This is what I do. So um, um, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. The ushers are going to come, and if you haven't given, then you need to, or if you want to drop in a comment card, a, a connection card. But I want to pray with you. Some of you may be struggling in your walk. And, and for the younger you are, the more noise in, in your life there is that, that seeks to drown out the voice of God that you may be hearing through your church, through your family, through your reading of the Bible.